Welcome to Christian Medical and Dental Association's Chapel. We trust this message will encourage your walk with the Lord. You may not be aware, but I am a Georgia Bulldog fan. <laughs> In fact, I went from Florida to Georgia to go to the University of Georgia. Um, and that's me, marching with the Red Coat Marching Band. Um, and if you ever live in Athens, it's called Dog Nation. Um, everything in the entire city is around that game on home game Saturdays. Um, I mean, like going to the grocery store, having to run an errand, you had to plan it around when the game was. Um, so they are serious about their tailgating. Um, you would think when I first started going to school there, I thought it was like a professional professional school there or something, or team there. Um, but then while I was there, I met a fella, and he was also in the band. It's my husband, Scott, who played trombone. Um, I marched flute and piccolo. So Georgia Bulldog, the football team, is essentially why my children exist. And, <laughs> and you know, the Bible instructs us to raise people in the way they should go. <laughs> so there's my grandson. Um, clothing attire for the entire year bought by my husband for him. So as he grew, he had something Georgia Bulldog. So um, Georgia won the national champion three days ago, if anyone is not aware of that. Um, but we also won last year. And um, we've been through our hard times, the Bulldogs. In 2017, we were playing in the national championship with, uh, with Bama. And we were winning the entire game until the last quarter. And they came from behind and in the last seconds got a tipped pass, went all the way back for a touchdown and beat us. It was one of those agony of defeat moments, just like Ohio had two weeks ago when we were playing them. And they were beating us the entire game. We were really not thinking we're going to come back from this one. And, and we, we won in the, last, in the last 30 seconds of the game. But what I noticed through all of that was I was so vested in that game. I mean, I was like screaming. I was like, my heart was racing. We were all so anxious. Everyone, you know, you, you, you watch football games now with Facebook. We have a Red Goat Band alumni Facebook page just so we can comment back and forth about the game through the whole game. But everyone was like, our nerves. I mean, we were so nervous. And I was like, this is so crazy. It's just a game. Why are we getting so vested in this? And I've thought this over the years, growing up and raising my family in Dog Nation, and even pastors have preached about it, you know, that we're so vested in this. What would happen if we were that vested in our spiritual life? Wouldn't it be amazing if we could see the spiritual warfare going on around us? Wouldn't we be so vested, so kingdom-minded, kingdom-focused, ready to pray for someone if we could see, ah, oh, they're going to tackle them, we got to get in there and pray for them. But we don't. So I, I've thought this off and on over the years, so I finally thought, you know what? I'm going to search scripture and see what God has to say about the Georgia Bulldogs. No, to see... <laughs> <laughs> to see what he has to say about spiritual warfare and why we aren't able to really picture that a whole lot better. So the terminology, spiritual warfare is a terminology used to describe the conflict Christians face against the devil and demonic spirits. In 2 Corinthians 10.34, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And then Ephesians 10, 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So spiritual forces of wickedness 
are in the heavenly places. Like, wow, I, I just had to think about that. And then, of course, we're taught, we all know this one, to put on the armor of God um, in Ephesians. The main one, and I'm not going to go through all those, but there is the shield, which is our faith. And then the sword, which is the word of God in our prayers. So the Christian life is a battle. It's a battle with Satan as our chief foe and his demonic forces. But we still, as we know, struggle against the world in our own flesh in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even at rest. So this warfare language is typically used more for battling dynamic, demonic forces than in our, 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 our fleshly battles. So it's Satan and his forces, commonly called demons, evil spirits, are the enemies, enemies of God and his people. And we know this by the fact that demons have been cast out. Jesus cast out demons. So these forces are portrayed though as personal, and I hadn't really thought as much about that, that they are each a person, um, supernatural beings, not simply just describing evil or satanic forces, but individual beings that are evil. Um, Satan is literally being recognized as a ruler of this world who leads all these demonic forces. In John 12, 31 and 32, Jesus is speaking, and he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So these demonic forces are likely fallen angels. Second Peter 2.4 For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, and he goes on. Um, so they are described and characterized, I read this in Ephesians 2, as rulers, authorities, as world powers of darkness, as spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. So looking back at the Old Testament, the Old Testament clearly describes the initial fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. But I'm not going to read all of that for time purposes, but it appears that pride was a primary cause of his fall. His heart became proud, and he sought to ascend to the throne of God. But God's judgment was to cast him down. So stop for just a bit and think about this. What does this show us about God and the character of God? That from the very beginning, the enemy was not outside his control. Look at the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, as early as Genesis 3. It's not named initially, but later is identified as Satan. And the enemy was bent on destroying Job, but had to follow within the perimeters of what God allowed him to do. He enticed David to sin in 1 Chronicles 21.1. Then Satan stood against Israel and moved David to number Israel, allowing David's pride to start taking effect as he was counting what he had done. And then he also hindered the answer to prayer. There's that epic battle in the Old Testament in Daniel, 10, 10 through 14. It's described so well if you've ever read Frank, Frank Peretti's book, The Present Darkness. I mean, you just really get a good picture of the spiritual warfare going on around people. Um, but he sent the angel to encourage David. David had come to a point where he had humbled himself before the Lord. And he had set his heart really on understanding. And he was praying to God, asking for that. So God sent the angel Gabriel 
But as Gabriel was coming, he was delayed. He was delayed 21 days in which all this heavenly spiritual warfare and battle was going on, delaying Gabriel from coming to encourage David until God sent um, Michael, who, who is described as the chief princess of heaven. He had Michael come to help Gabriel win this battle so Gabriel was free to come encourage David. So if we could just see that, wouldn't that be phenomenal to know he's trying to get there, you know, and have people, intercessories praying for him to come help you? It'd just be so neat to me. Satan also attacked Christ's followers, of course. He led them in several ways. One is he led them to focus on themselves above God's plan for our lives. In Luke 22, 31 through 62, I'm just reading part. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Still, the rooster crowed three times. But but he had gone on to say in in, in, uh, Luke 22, 31, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So he prayed for his faith not to fail, but he already is saying, but it's gonna, because he says, when once you have turned again. So he knew he was going to fail, but he was going to make that not a complete failure, but a fall and come back. So um, he, caused, he also caused physical infirmities in Luke 10, 13, 10, and 17. Remember, Jesus healed the crippled woman who was so bent over she couldn't even stand up straight. He inhabited people. In Mark 1, just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do you have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. There were many evil spirits in Mary Magdalene. There were the spirits that were in in the man in the cave that were cast into the swine. So there was lots of ways in which um, evil spirits were allowed or able to inhabit people. Demons were evidenced in other ways as well, in muteness, in blindness, in self-inflicted wounds, in seizures, in shouting and bizarre behavior. So evil spirits, we can see clearly, are very powerful. Yet still, we have to remember they can't stand up against God. In fact, Jesus amazed people by his ability to cast out demons. But his casting out of demons was a very simple rebuke and telling them to come out. Um, in that day, it was typical more of the exorcism where they put on the robes and would, you know, spray the incense all over and make this big production of trying to cast out the demons. Jesus didn't dwell on that or make that a priority in his ministry. We also know that throughout the Gospels, the demons knew exactly who Jesus was. When he came up, they recognized and knew him as superior to them, and they submitted to him. However, Dealing with demons was not the center of Jesus' ministry. His focus was on obeying the Father and seeking and saving the lost. It was through the cross, of course, that Jesus ultimately defeated the enemy. In Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So on the cross, Jesus modeled the defeat of Satan by his obedience. Obedience to God, even to the point of death. So the Bible's many warnings of spiritual warfare make clear that the enemy's attacks are aimed foremost at followers of God. 
Look at Job's tragic losses. Look at Paul, who challenged us to put on the full armor of God. And Peter, who warned of an enemy who prowls like a roaring lion. And then James, who called us to resist the devil. Satan and his forces cannot snatch genuine believers from God's hand. John 10, 27, 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Yes, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So Satan has principal tactics that he uses for us that are very effective, temptation, deception, division, false teaching, persecution, distraction. His goal is to weaken a believer's faith and harm their witness, or even just distract from their witness. So we as Christians engage the darkness, though, when they proclaim and live out the gospel. Satan and his forces distract us from that. So our offense is evangelism and discipleship. Our defense is faith and prayer. So again, just to reiterate, focus on God and his work rather than the demons. Jesus modeled that. He was not primarily focused on fighting demons and, and going around casting them out and, and all of that. He was focused on reaching the lost and giving them salvation. So there's the answer to my question. Why doesn't he let us see more of what's going on in the heavenlies? I think we would be so focused, just like we are in a football game, we'd be so focused on what's going on in the battle, where would we be looking at? We'd be looking at the demons and the evil spirits we would take our eyes off the ball and we'd be looking at the wrong thing. If we let all that happen and use our prayer for us and each other, then all that can be going on and we're focusing on Jesus and just what he calls us to do in obedience. The book of Ephesians and the armor of God, 6, 10 through 17, talks a lot about what the spiritual walk should look like. So if you divide that up, um, Chapters 1 through 3 focus on the work of God in calling non-believers to himself in our redemption through grace. So the first half of Ephesians is really talking about just, just what we should be doing as, non, as um, believers, as reaching non-believers. The second half, chapters 4 through 6, emphasize our behavior, our personal walk as a believer. It even tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God. So to incorporate this into our life, the spiritual resources God has given us are truth, and not just what the truth is, but who the truth is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Righteousness, and of course not our self-righteousness, but our righteousness we've received through Christ and his grace and mercy. Our gospel, the gospel's faith as our shield, salvation, the word of God, which is our true sword, it's our only offensive weapon but it's the most powerful one, and that's through our prayer and proclaiming and living out the good news. In this case, unlike football, victory is not by the power we display, but it's by the, or by the obedience we're able to offer as a result of how God empowers us to do that. Prayer is essential to be victorious in spiritual warfare, using the sword through prayer. Ephesians 6.18 with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit, and with this in view, be on alert, and all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We are also called to intercede for one another, remaining alert in battle, and continually depending on God. 
Colossians 4, 2 through 3. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open us up to us a door for the word. So keep your eye on the ball. Keep your eye on Jesus, not the enemy, not the spiritual warfare, um, and not certainly the enemies and demons that we experience here on earth. So I tried to make a little bit light of this, but um, you know, our battles are heavy, and life can be really, really hard. Um, so it is, is, it is helpful to remember that. You know, they've already won the battle, even though you, it doesn't hurt. It's not, a, it's not horrible to be anxious during that. I know we shouldn't fear, but, um, you know, I, I think about Jesus and um, when he went to call Lazarus out of the grave, he still wept. It's okay to cry. It's okay to be sad at the hard times, even if you know the final outcome. Um, so sometimes, I don't know, I do feel a little bit of guilty about that. Like, I shouldn't be upset. I shouldn't be sad. It's okay. Jesus was too, even if we know the final outcome of the battle. Um, so let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for the lessons you teach us. It was good to learn. Uh, we know of the spiritual warfare going on, but to really iron out that if we put too much focus on that, that we'll lose sight of what we're supposed to be looking at, which is you, Jesus. And and you're there for us, walking through us with all these good times and bad victories and agonies of defeat. You're there through all of that in our lives. Um, and we just want to give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory for all that you do in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray.